I think that like we have, you know, we have really adhered to this like monolithic definition of value as, you know, quality and returns to your patient in terms of outcomes over the cost, um, you know, to a variety of different actors. And I think that that, that framework has motivated a lot of the field of health services research, but I think it doesn't answer the question of value to whom. Like, I think we all want it to believe that it's value to the patient, but like, I'm not convinced that it is, and I'm not convinced that we're measuring it to be. Not otherwise specified has always been one of my favorite phrases in medicine. Not just because it's a fancy way of saying we don't really understand the root cause of something, but also because it captures the human impulse to put tidy labels on things that remain largely unknown. In NOS, I talk with some of medicine's most innovative thinkers to probe some of these messy unknowns behind our healthcare system, its players, and the stories that shape their lives. NOS makes time for the types of in-depth conversations that may not leave us with easy answers, but that shed fresh light on medicine's toughest challenges, as well as the people envisioning its future. I'm Lisa Rosenbaum, and you're listening to Not Otherwise Specified, from the New England Journal of Medicine. My guests today are Paula Chatterjee and Athene Venkataramani, two amazing physicians, health policy researchers, and also a couple who I think bring unique insights to some of the thorniest questions facing our healthcare system. Both practice internal medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Paula is also a health services researcher who studies topics such as the quality of care, alternative payment models, and Medicaid policy. Recently, she's focused on payment and quality at safety net hospitals, both urban and rural. Athene is a health economist who studies the origins of health and socioeconomic inequality. He founded and directs Penn's Opportunity for Health Lab, whose research aims to identify policies that can boost opportunity and improve health for all Americans, making the American dream more of a reality. What I've always admired about both Paula and Athene is not only their deep commitment to making care better for our patients, but their recognition that part of that commitment entails a willingness to think through tough trade-offs and also sometimes push back on dogma that's getting in our patients' way. I recently sat down with the two of them for a conversation that covered a vast amount of ground, from the values they try to live by and instill in their son to the reciprocal relationship between their clinical work and their research, to the social determinants of health and hospitals' capacity to address them, to the roles of both narrative and individual physicians in improving U.S. healthcare, to polarization over responses to COVID. But I started simply by asking them about their life together, wondering where their paths first crossed. Our paths crossed um, when I was a college student and Athene was getting his PhD. Um, So we met in uh, the context of a class, actually. um, And it was actually a very, like, pivotal class for me because it was a class on sort of health policy issues in the United States. And so it was really, like, my first chance to say, like, wow, there are levers to control upstream things that we, you know, just see the sequelae of, uh, uh, you know, when when patients present in the hospital. So did you just totally nerd out at first and talk about health policy all the time? There was some nerding out, but there was a lot more (laughs) philosophy about how, um, I think our early conversations always centered around values. Uh, What are the things that we believe in and how does that change the way we approach the world and the people around us and the things we want to change? Um, I think we literally still have those types of conversations. We had one this morning. 
This related to, to parenting and kind of our philosophy about um, our child and how he's going to navigate the world and what are the things do we think are most important for him to keep in mind um, as he navigates what seems to be a crazy world, um, but that's also uh, filled with beauty. So how do we best uh, enable him to appreciate all of that while also being someone who can, uh, who sees fit to contribute in positive ways? And I think the, the crux of our morning conversation was that we didn't sense that each of us were at our best selves. And so we were trying to figure out like why we were not at our best selves and what, you know, what is it that is knocked us off kilter and what can bring us back? And it's funny, we always like go back to the same principles, the same like grounding principles, grounding values. Um, one of those is um, kind of the centrality of, of, of our kid and speaking to him at his level and trying to kind of engage him in a way that he sees true to his own unique personality, his very unique personality. Um, that's one. The, the second thing we have is this fun and one principle, which is like right. he should be having fun in what he's doing, but we should have some value add, like here's something else you could try or here's something you can learn from that. There's yeah. another thing about, I think, about um, trusting ourselves and trusting each other with independence, which is obviously, you know, relevant in parenting, but I think is also relevant to adulting, you know, in that uh, there are so many times when you want to jump in or you want to um, exert your influence. But, you know, oftentimes it's, it's the best thing you can do is just step back. I'm not surprised that you have this value-centered approach to parenting because I think it's something I've sensed among both of you in terms of how you conduct yourselves as clinicians and also, though, in terms of the values that seem to be embodied in your research. And so I think one thing I'd love to hear from you is how you ground yourselves in clinical care, because I think it's really hard for a lot of people who split their time between research and clinical work to balance both, especially when they get pulled away from research to do time on the wards. So I guess partly I want to hear about how you strike the balance, but I also would love to know how what you observe taking care of patients informs your research. That's a really big question, so I'll give you like the, the short answer. Um, I think staying grounded in clinical medicine, it, it, it's important to both of us. And it's, um, you're always pulled in a lot of directions. And I think one of the ways that kept me, that has kept me kind of, you know, focused on that is one, to do it as often as possible, you know, within the bounds. Like if you're a researcher, like I think there's some amount of your FTE that's, that you can, set aside for clinical work. So maximizing that has actually been very important to me. And then the other piece of it is when I'm on the wards, like that's the only thing I'm gonna do. So for two weeks, I try really hard to not respond to any research-related emails. Um, that sounds like a very simple thing, but it turns out that there's all sorts of random things that people want from you throughout the year. Um, and it's actually getting harder, I think, for people to understand that when you're seeing patients, that's the only thing you're gonna do. Like, no, I'm not gonna, at three in the afternoon, I couldn't be on a phone call with you, or I could go back to this room of a patient that seemed pretty upset this morning and try to talk through the plan or kind of, you know, at least describe the uncertainty that um, is out there in their clinical care in a way that might make them feel better about what is to happen or what could reveal itself in the next few days. Um, so it's really important to make those little choices to just be focused on, on clinical care. So I think it feels right for sort of the sense of clinical identity you want to have. I remember I, was, I had this conversation with Natish Jowdhury when I was 
um, like thinking about, you know, doing a chief resident year um, when I knew I wanted to be a researcher. In some ways that, that choice is compatible, in other ways it's not compatible. He said, you have to decide what your clinical identity is gonna be. And he's like, you have to carry that through. And that looks different for very different people. And, and I think it's something that we still are defining over time. I think it means giving giving your attention to patients when you're in the hospital, when that is your job. I also think it, um, I mean, we also have the wonderful luxury of working with residents. And so it gives us that time to, you know, go back to the bedside, spend time with patients. And, and it is the richest gift of all for a researcher, right? To just like talk to a patient and hear their story and then be able to say like, wow, how does that fit into this broader context of questions that might be important to either other patients or systems or thinkers or policymakers? We both see patients at a hospital uh, here in West Philadelphia. It is seen as sort of like the, the community hospital for the surrounding neighborhood. You know, patients <laughs> patients like affectionately say, you know, I, I was born at Presby and I'm gonna die at Presby. That's sort of like that value that that hospital holds. Um, and I remember we, we had a patient on service who came in with a heart failure exacerbation, was previously taken care of at Hahnemann. And this was shortly after Hahnemann closed um, uh, a couple of years ago. And so all of his care had become so fragmented. And, you know, we, we continued sort of the, the, the routine care plan. We were trying to achieve successful diuresis and we were trying to move things forward and just was not going well. It was not getting anywhere. We were not making clinical progress. The relationship was not um, as uh, successful as it could have been. And then I remember on, you know, hospital day two, I came back in the afternoon. I said, you know, I feel like we are not doing right by you. Please help me understand how we can do right by you. And he just looked at me plainly and said, you guys don't know me. You know, he mm -hmm. said, you know, at Hahnemann, they knew me. He said, they knew who I was. They knew what I did. And they knew how I do this. And he said, you guys just don't know me. And he's like, and you can't fix that, but we can try, but you gotta know that you don't know me. And I, in that moment, I thought, wow, like there's something, um, there's something really important being told to me here. Now I find myself asking a research question of what are the specific returns to specialization that a safety net hospital provides to patients? What is it that Hahnemann knew about this guy that I don't? And how much did it matter for his care, for his life, for his outcomes? And so um, we, we're, we're trying to sort of put this really powerful statement to the data and say, like, look, if we have patients who previously went to safety net hospitals that unfortunately closed due to financial pressures or stressors, what happens to patients afterward? What happens to their continuity of care? Um, what happens to the relationships that they're able to build with the healthcare system? Um, and all of it was just because he, uh, you know, he told me, you know, it was it was plain and in front of me and, and, and he told me what the question was. So that's one example. Athena, I know that you also had a formative experience, I think, when you were a resident at MGH. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that experience sort of informed your overarching research agenda? Back when I was a senior resident, it was, it was actually the last, I think, six months of having my, of residency and having this uh, care panel uh, in Charlestown. And I had a patient who I'd been working with for a few years um, on a number of different issues, um, including substance use disorder, of which one was was tobacco. And we were um, every year we talked about smoking cessation, and you know there was some I think kind of pre-contemplative, occasionally contemplative statements, and we sort of worked within that. Um, so the final year I, I was with him is probably the last time I was going to see him. I said, you know just so I can tell the next person who takes over the panel what, um, 
What happened as far, uh, uh, you know, with, with smoking cessation? We talk about it a lot. We always put it on the agenda, but, um, you know, it looks like I haven't been able to help you. So what's going on? And he said something really interesting, which was, I'm really never going to get out of here. So what's the point? And when I pushed him on it, what he meant was he was kind of in this um, working class life in Charlestown. He was one of the, quote, townies. Um, and that, you know, that part of Charlestown had really been, had benefited um, during the heyday of American industry um, with shipbuilding and other things. People were living these like very uh, middle class lives. And as those industries disappeared, a lot of those folks um, ran out of the same economic opportunities. And his whole point was like, this is me. There's nothing for me here. So like, why am I going to spend all this time uh, working on um, quitting smoking? And a light bulb went off for me because that's actually, there's this famous economic model called the Grossman model, which talks about how uh, people's demand for health care and the kind of the stock of their health over the life course. And one of the statements in that model is that if people have the, um, the ability to earn higher wages, it actually makes more sense to invest in their own health in order to capture those higher wages. And the corollary here is if he felt the hope to have a better life, he basically was saying that that would have been a reason to invest more in his health, but without that hope, he didn't. Um, and so it immediately connected me to this idea of people's hopes for the future, the American dream, and how just the psychology of that could shape their decisions when it came to health behavior, their mental health, and, and their physical health as well. Um, and so we pulled on that thread, and we've been pulling on it now for, I think, almost seven years. Uh, the lab, which is two years old as of, um, I think, yesterday, it really owes itself to this patient insight. Um, I don't like to call myself a social determinants of health researcher, but let's just use that term. Um, Osler said something like, listen to the patient, um, they are telling you the diagnosis. And I think it's true also for some of these social factors. Like people are pretty clear about what are the things that are going on in their broader lives, uh, whether in their households, in their communities, or even broader than that, uh, that affect the way they feel when they see you. Uh, in the hospital or in the clinic or so forth. And listening to that and, and then taking that to the data in ways that might speak to other people who feel the same thing, I think has been a very rewarding exercise for me. Can you talk a little bit about some of the studies that have been born of that observation that hope and despair play these key roles in people's lives in terms of their willingness to invest in their own health? Yeah, sure thing. I, I think, you know, our lab has looked at a bunch of different exposures that we think are tied together, um, not necessarily in the eyes of public, but are tied together theoretically because they do change people's opportunities, real or perceived. Uh, those things include automobile plant closures in the industrial Midwest, uh, banning of affirmative action uh, in university admission decisions at the state level, um, police killings of unarmed uh, black American individuals, um, the rise of industrial robots that replace manufacturing jobs. These are all different things we've looked at and we've tied to uh, phenomena like mental health uh, decrements, worsening mortality, opioid uh, use disorder. Um, but the fundamental idea in all of these studies is that there's something that's happening to people that regardless of what uh, station of life you are, what race, ethnicity you might be, what strata of American society you occupy, um, something is happening that is fundamentally changing the way you think about the future or what you're able to do in the future. And that that powerfully changes the way um, your health evolves over the, uh, over the next few years and even long run. So what do you think then is the responsibility of the healthcare system to address these so-called social determinants of health? 
obviously, we're talking a lot about the role these social determinants play in our patients' lives, but the question still remains, what do we do about it? So what do you think is the responsibility of our healthcare systems to remedy these social determinants of health? Hospitals have, or health systems, have the advantage of, of seeing people um, in a very vulnerable place in their lives as it relates to their health. And so the sum influence of all of these factors that have come to shape their health um, appears in front of you in the form of a patient, right? And I think hospitals, by virtue of collecting those stories, um, can play an important role in telling those stories. Uh, so that, that's one piece of it. Functionally, what can hospitals do to address social determinants of health? I think there's some things that are within the wheelhouse of hospitals, and there are other things that I just don't think we do in medicine very well, and we probably shouldn't do. Um, the things that we can do well is at the point of care, we can connect people to services. Uh, we can work with community organizations in ways that um, reimagine what the handoff is at discharge so that people don't fall through the safety net, but rather have a place to go. Um, I think these are all things um, that hospitals can do. Um, I get more worried when I see things like hospitals are investing in housing or you know, areas of, of health where um, we don't actually know a lot about those markets. Uh, we don't know what our involvement will do in the housing market. Um, and it, it sort of goes beyond, I think, medicine and the point of care to something that um, we run the risk of doing harm because we just don't know how to do that well. Uh, and perhaps the effort there is better spent by you know, the, the state or federal housing authority who kind of understands the problems better uh, than, than a private organization like a hospital. So there's some delineating on roles, but it's not like we can't do anything. Let's just focus on what our comparative ad advantage uh, really mm -hmm. is. I think, I, I, you know, two points come to mind. The first point is I think that there are a lot of things within the wheelhouse of hospitals and health systems that we are leaving on the table in terms of achieving goals related to equity or um, addressing a subset of social determinants of health that I think the health system is well equipped to do. Um, so for example, like we, we can ask hospitals and health systems and incentivize them to measure their within hospital disparities, whether it's by race, whether it's by other socioeconomic strata. Um, we can incentivize the measurement and then incentivize the closure of those gaps within a given hospital. That seems within the purview of their existing resources. You know, there's a, we can of course get into a separate conversation of well-resourced and less well-resourced hospitals, but I think that is in the wheelhouse of what hospitals can do. They can make sure that all of their patients have access to mortality-reducing therapies, for which we know that there are already existing disparities. Like these are, these are aligned with the clinical goals of hospitals and health systems and within their reach. I think my second thought is that there is um, a whole area of questioning that we should be asking about what is the relationship between a hospital and health system and its surrounding community, right? And this gets back at your points of like, if a hospital understands a patient to be experiencing homelessness, what should the interaction be with housing and urban development? What should the interaction be um, with local public health resources, with, uh, with existing government infrastructure that technically should be providing these services? Because I think that is, that's the order of question we should be asking. Um, it helps fortify 
systems that are already in place that are meant to catch these folks who, but for the grace of God, we catch them in the hospital. But, you know, God forbid they're, they're, they're not caught and they're left out, you know, uh, suffering from some, uh, from one of these structural determinants, you want to build the systems to be stronger and functioning on their own. And so I think figuring out where the health systems fits in proximity to these other uh, social entities and organizations is where, where I think we should be asking the questions. There's also a class of things that health systems are doing that may or may not be of um, benefit uh, to their surrounding communities. So we know that there's a trend towards increasing concentration in hospital markets, right? There's more mergers. Um, there's more monopoly power within large health systems. That's how things have been going for 20 years. Uh, there's a line of argument that um, Anne Case and Angus Deaton have put forth, which is that as these uh, entities get larger, um, they're able to demand more prices uh, from insurers for episodes of care, which raises the cost of health insurance, um, which can potentially have negative effects in the labor market um, because employers are basically paying people. Um, and at some level, they are, uh, many employers are also um, uh, providing health insurance benefits to employees. And they may not be able to afford as many employees as a result of this market consolidation. And so there are th these things that we do um, as a hospital to survive as a hospital or to thrive as a hospital, perhaps, um, that may actually have negative consequences on our communities. And we're not really thinking about that hard enough. So what do you think then is keeping us from thinking hard enough about these questions? Is it a conceptual problem or is it a problem in the way we ask research questions? One example that comes to mind, I think, is our conceptualization of value. Um, I think that like we have you know, we have really adhered to this like monolithic definition of value as, you know, quality and returns to your patient in terms of outcomes over the cost, um, you know, to a variety of different actors. And I think that, that that framework has motivated a lot of the field of health services research, but I think it doesn't answer the question of value to whom. Like, I think we all want it to believe that it's value to the patient, but like, I'm not convinced that it is, and I'm not convinced that we're measuring it to be. Um, and so I, I, that's something that I, I, I find myself thinking about a lot. I, I do think that there are, there's a lot of exciting work that's challenging some of these original paradigms. You know, like I, I think about Ziad Obermeyer's work who asked the question of, yes, there is low value care and we should probably use less of it, but when are we underusing high value care, right? Like we, we have to ask both sides of that coin. Um, I also think that there's, uh, you know, a whole crop of people who are asking questions about this. These, there are groups of patients who are so um, over-serviced by the healthcare system, but yet extremely underserved when it comes to their well-being and their outcomes. And I think, you know, there are people thinking transformatively about what value looks like to those patients in a way where like throwing more services at them is not necessarily the answer. And maybe we can think about that differently. So I, I a theme that I come back to a lot is sort of like the canonical approach to value can inform some really, really important questions, but it cannot give us every goal of the healthcare system. There's a patient story that reminds me of the two things that I think are going on. Um, so there's a patient that came in um, with uncertain fluid status. The model that everyone has with that was that they were volume overloaded, but then the second question was like, you know, why was that the case? And so there was this like 24 hour dance of like some people being like, well, you know, maybe they're a little dry, like let's give them some fluid and then diuresis, fluid diuresis, 500 cc's here, 40 of Lasix there. And in the end, like, you know, this was a patient that was um, 
basically like cold and wet and uh, needed, uh, ended up needing pressers and all sorts of stuff. Um, and, and so it reminds me of two things. One is that um, if you're in the matrix, you can't really study it. So we are like, we are sort of beholden by the type of data we routinely collect. We, you know, we, health services researchers are typically in large academic medical centers, which are not necessarily the norm for where people get their care, but that's what we know. Um, we collect claims data, EHR data, which are necessarily, I think, um, geared towards specific purposes, but not necessarily towards understanding the world. Uh, so that's kind of creates an inertia in what we can study and limits what we can study. Um, I think that's one big thing. The second thing is there's no opportunity, uh, or I think the incentives of the system are such that there is fewer opportunities to be gloriously wrong in ways that are productive. So mm. what should have happened with this patient is that we did one of those things and realized it was totally the wrong thing to do, and then, um, and then we would have learned from that. But instead what happens is that you get this kind of on and off type of like risk averse type of maneuvering that ultimately can lead to bad outcomes. And in research it's like, that's why you see the hundredth paper showing that like income is associated with health or that places, um, people who uh, you know, were of low income tended to do worse from COVID-19. Like we know this hundred times over, we know this for every disease, but the incentives of the system are such that we don't actually feel we can take a risk to learn more than that or do something totally crazy when it comes to measuring value and seeing if that might work. And if not, why not? Like, I just don't think that type of culture is there. There's so much that I want to unpack in that observation in terms of incentives of the system and also the potential way that academic promotion works. But I think one thing I'm going to ask you about, which is only a slice of it all, is the way narrative plays a role. And I think the value story is really an interesting one because it has its origins in the Dartmouth data. And those data essentially were a set of observations looking at the associations between healthcare spending and outcomes and basically finding that higher spending wasn't always correlated with better outcomes and sometimes higher spending was associated with harm. And those data have had what I would argue is more influence than any other health services research I've ever come across because they really launched what I've come to think of as the less is more narrative, which essentially suggests that not only are a third of healthcare dollars wasted, but this important corollary, which is that if we then just pay doctors, not for how much they do, but for how well they do it, our quality will be better and we'll have massive cost savings, which of course then became the bedrock principle of all these value-based payment designs. But what's always been so fascinating to me about all of this is that you really just have these observations which didn't test an intervention. They're a series of correlations, but then they were translated into health policy that affects all of us and all of our patients, and it's a health policy that's never been tested prior to implementation. And it's not a health policy that's clearly working. And so it's not just as you're saying this question of value to whom, it's all these other questions like what is value, what is quality, can we measure it, do we save money by trying to pay for it, and are we all losing our minds in the process? Like so many questions. And so as I've tried to understand it, part of what I've always found so interesting about all of this 
was that it's just such a compelling narrative because it was a narrative that didn't force us to make any trade-offs. Like we could improve quality and cut costs at the same time. And there's so much about that that's appealing. And so I guess what I'm wondering, really, I think I have two questions. One is, what do you make of how health services research kind of got lost in translation in this instance? But also maybe even more importantly, what do we learn from that? Like, how do we better use health services research to inform policy? I think one of the problems with that narrative is on is on this like a fundamental margin that this is a story about care. So that there's this um, every so often in social media, there's that chart from the New York Times, which plots the sp uh, spending uh, of different countries uh, in the healthcare system and what happened to trajectories in life expectancy. And you see the U.S. kind of lonely um, with this you know, precipitous rise in spending in healthcare while falling off of the curve in every sense um, when it comes to longevity compared to peer countries. Um, and I think like that story is kind of brought about. It's like, wow, there's so much waste in our healthcare. Um, and, but to, be, to believe that is the whole thing, you have to think that not only is there waste in healthcare, it's that the, the marginal dollar is causing irreparable harm. And I think that's where things have gone wrong because what's actually happening in that curve, um, you can trace back to the early 1980s and potentially a large series of changes in American society, um, the opportunities people had, the rise in inequality, a number of other forces um, that have patterned uh, mortality in ways that have occur outside the healthcare system. So if our fundamental problem that we all agree on is that we are spending a lot, but our life expectancy is relatively bad compared to our peer countries, then we, have, we actually have to look at why that's happening, and it's not in the healthcare system. So for me, it's, it, this, the, to see so many people spending energy on the relationship between healthcare spending and outcomes, um, I wonder if some of that talent is misallocated because there is actually this whole other thing that's going on that's patterning health in American society outside the healthcare system that we should probably be talking about more. And I think we are talking about more now. This deconstruction of like what the determinants of health are, you know, if you bake the pie chart about the determinants of health, health care is but a very small sliver of that. And we have, you know, I think health services research can, can maybe focus on like what the achievable goals of the health care system are relative to these other contributors. Like not to beat a dead horse, but I go back to this point about understanding the role of the healthcare system as it fits into a broader world, I think is an underdeveloped area. We don't know that. We don't know how hospitals are supposed to interact with local governments, how hospitals are supposed to interact with public health agencies. But those are the questions we should be asking because if, you, if the goal is to improve health, we have to engage outside of healthcare. Um, that just seems part and parcel. And so, like, I, I think the one reason that, you know, we as health services researchers may have been hesitant to do that is that we feel like, oh, if we say it's not the hospital's responsibility, then we are abnegating our responsibility to the patient. We're saying we don't care about those things, which is not true. If we didn't care, we wouldn't be asking these questions. But I think if we truly want to answer them, we have to engage with parties, engage with lines of inquiry, engage with other you know, practitioners who also share health as a goal in order to figure out like how we all contribute to the pie. I've wondered a lot about how the focus on the healthcare system's responsibility for some of these factors affects individual physicians' sense of responsibility. I mean, I personally find myself all the time saying things like, you know, the healthcare system sucks, the healthcare system is so broken. 
But sometimes I do worry when we focus so much on what the system's responsible for that we overshadow how much power we still have as individual physicians to help our patients. We are not helpless actors, right? Like we are not just like cogs in this machine that works without us. And the way we try and pass that on is to walk the walk, just like you're saying, right? To say that like, look, these are the things that you can do as a physician. You can go back to the bedside at 3 p.m. and figure out what is is standing in the way between you providing the best quality care you can for this patient. You can call a family member and figure out what, you know, quote unquote causes of readmission are gonna be, which oh, by the way, are gonna be helpful to this patient if you can address before they leave the hospital. Like those are all, you know, quiet superpowers that we have that, you know, when when you put a fancy name on it, perhaps we'll value it more. But but those are all just part of those are the those are within the individual, right? Like those are those are things that we often do that are good practice um, without being incentivized to do so. One thing I thought a lot about when I was writing about quality is that we all know a good doctor when we see one, but somehow quality measures seem to have mostly failed to capture that. And it is the doctor who's going to call the family member or often the doctor who stays late or the one who, as you mentioned, goes back at 3 p.m. to say, you know, I really get a sense from you that you're not feeling good about all that's going on. And so, Paula, I think you and I talked about whether that sort of spirit can ever be captured in a measure or a metric. And if it can't be, how do you then motivate people to be better? Like why, for instance, are you too motivated to put your research aside when you're on service? And what motivates you to be good? And then is there any way to bottle that up? I think, um, and maybe this answer gets back to what you were talking about, structures and, and systemic forces. I think it's easy for me to put things aside because I think if I do, that I personally can make a difference in this person's care in front of me and that it is possible to have a positive impact on the world um, by just being a physician, not just being a physician, by being a good physician. Um, And that's, you know, at some level, I don't know if I will ever be a good physician in the, in the way that I think of a good physician, but it's worth aspiring and working towards that um, because that's the belief. Um, and maybe I have that belief because I don't practice 100% of the time, so I'm not beat down by some of the other features that I think um, steal time away from patient encounters and, and so forth. Um, it may be because I'm not in the system long enough or to, to have been told or believed that it's all the system and that I can't do anything about it. And I, I still have that sense of agency. Um, but I get the sense with trainees, I have a lot of them who come to me because they want to do research on a question. And some of it is for fellowship, some of it is because they're interested in research. Um, but there's this underlying thing that I get the sense, which is like, I have to do this if I want to influence the thing that I want to change, right? If I want to make that change. And I hope that there's a point where more trainees see that actually you don't have to do that. You can just do what you're doing and do it really well because we need people to do that. Um, and that maybe then whatever systemic changes we need to make that can make that agency easier, that, that, that path clear, that being a physician is something that can make a positive impact on people's lives and humanity, um, then it can be restored. Yeah. I, I think about this story that, um, I think it's like a, a parable, but David Himmelstein was the first person who told me it. And he said, you know, you see somebody on the side of the street, they've got a flat tire, 
you stop to help them, you know, they, they need it. But if you see somebody on the street and they're holding a sign that says flat tire, we'll pay 50 cents, are you more or less likely to stop and help them? And it gets at this question of like, what does it mean to reward altruism, I think? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think so many clinicians believe in their work in a very deep way because of this sense of responsibility they have, right? Like it's this sense of responsibility to the person in front of you to think as hard as you can to try and help them feel better, right? And there's something very there's something very deep, something very personal about that, something that looks different from person to person. And so if you're trying to, I think bottling that up is hard because it, it, it means something different to everybody. And to some extent, you know, I, I think about that parable because you worry about the harm of trying to incentivize it. Are you diminishing the significance of something that is so deep and personal to them by trying to say, hey, I'll give you this for that? I always struggle with that a little bit because like you're saying, the, the care of the patient is so is so personal because it should be, right? Um, and, and that I think is what should should drive, that, that is what drives us. Um, yeah. You know, I, I have, of course, thinking about Mike McWilliams' work on sort of how do you harness the professionalism uh, that we know to be innate in so many of the people who provide care and how do we create systems to do that, um, I think is the, the right question. And so I, in terms of uh, what does this look like from a measurement standpoint, too, mm-hmm. I, I, I find myself thinking about that, um, thinking about how hard it is to probably measure. Well, I agree with you. But I guess then the question becomes, why are we so wedded to things like pay for performance, which doesn't seem to be working that well? We know extrinsic motivators likely undermine intrinsic motivation, and we know doctors are so burned out. So what is it that's tying us to this system that isn't working and is probably quite demoralizing to lots of physicians? It kind of actually blows my mind. Yeah, it's always interesting. Um, I was uh, looking at some new research on peer comparisons with physicians and how that's not motivating, actually. It's the opposite. Uh, you're told you're wor- you do worse than your peers. You actually get the gap even increases. And it's just it, it's so interesting that we add systems on top of... Systems are already kind of com- you know, circumscribing the work of uh, physicians uh, in, way- in some ways that might be necessary, in other ways that might be limiting. And then we're adding more things to that um, without kind of asking the fundamental questions about what, what they might do to people and whether that fur- further undermines their scope of practice and authority, which, you know, it's funny, like if I were to say these things 20 years ago, there's like a whole movement of people that would be like, we need to like circumscribe that authority of physicians because they're contributing to healthcare costs and waste and stuff like that. And I find myself on the other side of it now being like, I just wish you would leave me alone. Um, because I think I know exactly what to do here. I'm the only person who has the knowledge of this of, of this particular patient because I'm the one involved in the episode of care. Um, and so you just have to, if you could trust me to know that this is the right plan of action. I have spent a week thinking about this. Um, like it's just, it, 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 there's, there is a fundamental disconnect there. And I think we have, you know, this idea of physician autonomy, um, the place in the system, uh, there's multiple different, I think, opinions about what the degree of autonomy should look like, um, what that means for cost, because things always come back to cost and waste and, and all of that. And if we can free ourselves of those concepts for a few minutes and, and think about, like, what, do you, what is it that you want a given doctor to be able to do and feel that they can do credibly, um, what can we actually subtract um, from what we're making them do? The other 
other thing is like the goal of value-based payment, as you said, Lisa, is to improve quality and reduce cost. And if if those are the goals, there are such bigger fish to fry than rearranging the deck chairs on physician payment, right? Like if you want to reduce costs, let's have a conversation about hospital prices, right? Like that is an actual big ticket item. It's inconvenient. (laughs) It's inconvenient and it's hard and it's wrapped up in a whole bunch of complicated stuff. But so is this current thing that we're trying to do that is only getting us incrementally anywhere. I mean, I definitely believe there's benefit to guidelines and standardization. And Paula, I think even some of your work has looked at this too in terms of process measures in cardiology. So I definitely don't want to just throw the baby out with the bathwater. But I do think that not only do we not have data to suggest that imposing quality measures improves quality, but I also really think in terms of physician morale, which is a huge problem, and people's sense of meaning in their work, undermining physicians' autonomy has huge consequences that we haven't even begun to grapple with as a profession. I mean, when you talk to psychologists about what makes for intrinsic motivation, they'll tell you it's mastery, relatedness, and autonomy, but they always emphasize that it's autonomy that's most important. And so it just seems like this huge oversight as we have these simultaneous conversations about burnout and about quality, that there's little talk about what our metricized system is doing to physician spirit and agency. Anyway, I am going to switch gears, though it's somewhat related to this idea of agency and our individual relationships to our patients, because I'd love to hear your thoughts before we end about the relationship between medicine and society. So obviously, much of COVID was spent hand-wringing about distrust of science. And there was, I guess, this complete surprise, shock, and often disgust at the fact that so many people seem to reject scientific facts. And we're still having this ongoing discussion about how science has become so politicized. And I think at this point, we all sort of get that. The question is, did we learn anything? I mean, we learned that a good chunk of society doesn't really seem to trust medicine as an institution or science as an institution. But did we learn anything about how to build back that trust? And I guess I'll just share my own bias right now, which is that I think so much of what we're talking about in terms of our agency as individual doctors comes down to building relationships with our patients and having the time to do that so that there's a foundation of trust which will allow eventually the exchange of medical science and scientific recommendations. And I think that we overlook the importance of those relationships at our own risk. But I really don't think that's been so much a part of the conversation about building back trust, which is often just talked about in very abstract terms. So I guess I'm curious what you guys think as you look back. Did we learn anything about how to depoliticize science or how to build back trust from COVID? Where where are we with all of that? I might posit that perhaps we've learned something, but we're not acting on it. Uh, at least in a useful way or in a public way. Uh, Maybe privately, many of us are. Um, I think the big thing that I've personally learned, and I think maybe others have learned too, is that there is an art to communicating uncertainty, and there is value in saying, I don't know, but we have to try something and see what happens. And the other side of that is we see what happens, and if it's not working, we change our tactics and we respond to new realities. 
And I think from the get-go, um, at least the way COVID mitigation strategies were talked about publicly by, I think, people who are now prominent in talking about this in various venues, there was a degree of certainty in their recommendations that was impossible given the level of scientific evidence, and I think it's still impossible given the level and quality of scientific evidence that in a pre-COVID world, they themselves would admit does not meet bar. And it's devolved into this thing where I think there's no questioning of one's own priors anymore, and there's more the acceleration of a narrative that never really stood on strong ground. And so if you're seeing people do that, if you've seen people divide into camps, if you're seeing every piece of data being interpreted in the obvious way it would, like the Bangladesh mask study, right? It's pretty obvious to see who who is going to respond positively and negatively to a paper like that, ex ante. If you know that that's going to happen, then I think ultimately we're not doing science anymore. Um, We have failed to think about the confidence interval around what happens when society is faced with a new problem. We just don't know. We try stuff. We report honestly as we can and we change our mind if we have to. Athim, you said something that really stayed with me and I think got completely lost in the so-called discourse. And that is that people don't necessarily value their health above everything else. And when I think about it, I guess it's also on some level the corollary of what you're studying in your lab, which is when people feel oppressed by other factors in their lives or when they feel despair, they value their health less. But can you talk a little bit about how that observation sort of played out during the pandemic? Because I think what you're getting at and that we really need to pay attention to is this bigger question of where science ends and values begin. And I'm not sure we ever had that conversation with the public during COVID or even amongst ourselves. Yeah, that's right. And I I think at times we struggle, we still struggle to have that conversation. As a health economist, you know, we would specify a model of people's like happiness or utility and the thing, which is um, an argument over many things that they want in their lives that, and that carry value, relationships with people, um, uh, the development of their, of their child maybe, or their ability to engage in certain activities and their health. That's, that's part of it. And everyone weighs those things differently. Um, different communities in the aggregate may even have different preferences all over all of those things. In you know, we can let's say, and we don't, let's say we had perfect data on the effect of every possible COVID-19 mitigation strategy, right? And you can define perfect in whatever way you want. Um, let's say we had that knowledge and that the, the, the standard errors, the confidence intervals were really narrow. People could still reasonably make very different choices or societies could choose to do things differently, as we've seen in different countries, um, on the basis of that even certain knowledge, uh, because they have different beliefs over what they're trying to maximize. And I think that's, you know, when you have a conversation in private about COVID, which often goes pretty well, (laughs) um, is because you're able to talk through those values. Uh, When these conversations happen online or on cable news, that kind of understanding of another person's set of values and the preferences they have over the things they do in life is not there. And so in being prescriptive, we often assume an objective function for society to maximize, which may or may not be what other people agree with. And then we can get into trouble because that recommendation is not going to land because they fundamentally reject the premise of what we're trying to do. Um, Every COVID-19 conversation, I think, comes down to this like lack of stasis in terms of what we are trying to do as a society. I mean, that's of course what makes for good doctoring too, right? When you are able to integrate 
what you know with what the person values. And so it was actually very striking to me that we've at least given lip service to the importance of that on an individual level, but that relationship between values and science seemed often, I think, overlooked when we were talking about it on a more societal level during COVID. So we started with Paula and Athene's personal values and their values as parents, clinicians, and researchers. And now we've arrived at societal values and their variability and how they inform approaches to health. And in between, we implicitly began to untangle the economic meaning of value in healthcare from the more humanistic or ethical meaning, a confounding that may be at the root of many of the problems we're trying to solve in our healthcare system. So they've given us a lot of food for thought, and this is probably a good place to stop. 